0: is back today, and we are responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 578.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom, through insightful conversations. A couple of times a year, we open up the show to your questions and uh, see if we can respond to a bunch of the themes that we've heard in the past few months. And uh, Bonnie regularly joins me on these episodes to provide uh, another perspective and to uh, help us to look at things through a little bit more of an objective lens. Hello, Bonnie. Welcome back
1: to the show. Hello, Dave. I'm glad to be back, and we have some really great questions today.
0: We do, and uh, every time we do this, I try to do my best to select some questions that reflect a few of the themes that I've been hearing about recently, and especially our first couple of questions here reflect uh, several of the themes that have come in recently, not only in from our listening audience, but also in some of our Academy conversations. So we're going to start off our first question here that comes in from Allison.
1: Allison asks, I'm looking for a book. On a specific leadership topic, how to lead, manage, coach others that are experts, more knowledgeable than you in the field. I've been unsuccessful in finding anything on this topic. I have found information on leading up, but this is not what I'm referring to. Leading up is about influencing those that are higher on the org chart than you. I'm referring to people that are my direct reports. I'm open to any suggestions on this topic.
0: Allison, thank you so much for this question. I selected it because it is a theme that has come up in many conversations. And like you, I haven't found a lot of resources on this. So let's uh, let's look at the big picture of this question, first of all. And you asked about leading, managing, and coaching others. So let's break that down just a bit. The role of a person who is the manager of another person, because you're asking about the direct report relationships here, is uh, first is really to do two big things. One of them is to manage, and manage means to handle complexity, and that is to do all the things that come along with handling complexity inside of an organization. So it is defining what the work is. It is defining the objectives of the work. It is providing and holding folks accountable for completing the work. And it's also deciding who does what kinds of things within the work. So that's all under the umbrella of complexity. And then, of course, there's the aspect of leadership, this word leadership and leadership the way I see it. And by the way, this definition comes originally from John Cotter is how to handle the question of change. Where are you going? What's the vision for the organization for the future? Where are people heading? And then, of course, there's this other word you mentioned of coaching, which is the people parts of this. How do you help people to move forward? And there's overlap between both of those in leadership and management. None of those things require you to be the subject matter expert in the work that's being done. That's not the role anymore of the leader or the manager. It helps, of course, and of course you need to have context of the work and what's being done inside the organization and knowledge of the work, but you're actually better off most of the time to have someone who is more knowledgeable in those roles and have the leader doing the work of leadership, which is to look at the big picture, And the manager, in in most cases, it's the same person, both leading and managing, of also handling the complexity, the big picture of it. And the challenge that many folks get into, especially as they move up the org chart, as many folks in our audience do, and this may be the case for you too, Allison, is that oftentimes you move into the next level role because you have done a wonderful job in the prior role as the individual contributor or at the role that was just previous to the role you're in. And the job isn't that anymore. The job isn't being the expert anymore. It's not being the individual contributor. It is really now looking at the bigger picture. And I mention all of that because I think historically, a lot of times folks get into the position you may be in, Allison, where you are thinking, gosh, I'm managing all of these people now and this team. And they know more about this than I do. They actually have more expertise and that that is a bad thing. And I think actually that's a good thing for helping you to do a better job of managing and leading because it forces you To not do the work yourself, which is what a lot of people struggle with when they get into a management or leadership role for the first time, is that they're still trying to do the work themselves. They're still jumping in too much. They're not delegating as effectively as they could, and they're not really developing and leading the team to be doing those things. So I actually think it's a net benefit to you to have folks who know more about the work And are experts in this area more so. Now, to your question specifically, okay, (laughs) that's all good, but what do I do? A few resources I think would be really helpful on this. One of the resources, since you asked for a few here, is uh, Tom Henschel's episode we did years ago, episode 190, on coaching coaching others and how to use coach skills effectively. I think that that's a wonderful entry point into this is starting to think about how to be a little bit more coach-like in your work and also how to navigate that very uncomfortable place that I think a lot of us find ourselves in, which is as managers and leaders, we of course are responsible for results. How do you navigate being responsible for results and at the same time helping people to develop their skills and help them to get from where they are to where they need to go. And Tom does a really beautiful job in episode 190 of outlining that. Uh, Another resource that I think is very helpful is Hassan Osman's book, Effective Delegation of Authority. He was on episode 413. Uh, He's been on the show a few times over the years, but we talked specifically on episode 413 about how to follow the delegation process. This is something that is a big challenge, for a lot of leaders, especially initially, of moving out of that individual contributor mindset and moving into the place of defining the work. What does the work actually look like? What are the objectives of the work? And being able to zero in on that. And Hassan has a beautiful system for utilizing that. I think that's a wonderful starting point as well. And then, of course, I would recommend the work of Michael Bungay Stanier, if you haven't already tracked that down. He's the author of The Coaching Habit. He was on episode 237 talking about some of those key questions. But I think the, the big mindset shift here, Allison, is that it's not the job anymore of the, the leader, the manager, insert whatever the title is in your organization, to do the work. It's the job to define the work. It's the job to decide where the team is going and the larger vision in the context of what's going to serve the organization. And the other thing that I would add on to this is just being upfront about that, too. Um, You're not going to fool anyone if you're not the expert of trying to pretend to be the expert. Having a conversation with the people you're leading about the fact that they have a lot more knowledge than you do, how can you support them? What are the things that you can do to um, uh, help support their work as they move forward, I think is a wonderful thing to do, especially as that relationship begins, because it acknowledges what how their role is uniquely important and critical for the organization because you're doing different kinds of work.
1: In case you couldn't tell from Dave's answer... The sad news is there is no one book. This is something that to me will probably never be there, wherever there is in our minds, but is an ongoing orientation toward working with other people. And one book I I have mentioned more than any other on the show, but I just want to bring up here again is called The Empowered Manager positive political skills at work i don't love the title because i don't think it does justice to all that's contained in there it does talk about managing up which you mentioned as not what you're looking for here but it talks about managing with one's peers and and it's just a wonderful look at changing our perspective about the relationship that we have to work and to others that we end up working with. Another important element to me is knowing yourself to be self-aware. And Dave just talked about at the tail end of his answer, you know, being forthright about, no, of course, I don't know as much as you know, about this particular area. I want to caution you to, though, not approach those conversations as if you have nothing to offer, though. That's not at all what Dave implied. But I just see so many times people get so intimidated by the fact that they perceive that these others know so much that they end up coming into the conversations where it's, because it's not a competition of who knows how much, but I think we've been misinformed or or we've not been socialized correctly because we come into these positions and into workplaces thinking that we need to have the answers, when instead we need to come into these places recognizing the power of asking Questions. So if you can reorient your mind to asking more questions, that can be something else that may be helpful. Another resource that I found helpful on this quest is by Edgar Schein. He's been on the podcast before. And the book I'm referencing here, which I did read and enjoy, is called Humble Leadership. In the area of knowing ourselves better, I just started this show, so I've only watched the first episode, but Brene Brown has an HBO special that she is doing all around emotions. And I can't even do it justice to try to describe it here, but emotions show up every day in our lives. But sometimes at work, we try to pretend as if they do not. It's a wonderful, wonderful watch. Again, so far, I suspect it's going to continue being so. And the last thing I'd like to reference is not necessarily directly related to your question, but again, there is no you know one thing that's going to have you read it and all of a sudden you'll be quote unquote cured. None of us will be, but it is a book about dignity by Donna Hicks. I have never read any books about dignity until recently, and since reading it, and I have also started a follow-up book that she wrote about dignity and leadership, And I'm just fascinated by the times in which a lack of dignity can really get in our way of being our most effective selves. And so that would be another resource where you may find that it's sometimes where you're you you have without even maybe you necessarily knowing it, had your dignity taken away at work, and therefore you do start to think that you're in this competition for who knows the most and who's the best at all of the things, as if that's a game we could win and is if that's a competition we would even want to win, rather than I like to think about my role as a leader at helping other people both discover as and become more aware of their strengths and then be able to show up in more powerful ways to be able to leverage those strengths and a lot of that today of course has to do with working with other people who have a collection of different strengths and then what happens when the volume levels get turned up too high on our, our various strengths so those are just, just a few ideas for you I encourage you to think about this though not as one book not as one cure but as an ongoing quest to know yourself better and to be able to show up in humble ways, in authentic ways, and in ways that are going to help other people be able to show up for their work more effectively.
0: I need to track down that Dignity book. I've heard you mention it a few times recently. It sounds like it's got some really... Really useful things for folks.
1: I happen to know a digital library where you could locate it because we are shared library people. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. we do
0: have our. Uh, we do have our. It's one of the benefits Kindle. of this yes. particular marriage. Yes. yes, exactly. Our Kindle family sharing account, <laughs> <laughs> Allison. I. hope that's... This
1: episode is sponsored by. Just kidding, everyone.
0: <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, uh, <laughs> thank thanks, Allison, for the question. Uh, it is one that I've heard again and again, and I- I'd look forward to hearing from you and hearing what you decide as a next step on uh, on moving into this space. Let's go to our next question from Everett. Everett wrote in and said, I'm interviewing candidates they will be working on my team. My top candidates speak English, but their accents are very heavy, and it can often be difficult to understand them. Frequently in the interview, they have had to repeat themselves several times before everyone came away with an understanding. During the debrief, there was a hesitation before everyone admitted that they could not understand the answers to some of the questions." When we are communicating via email or instant message, this will not be an issue, obviously, but there are several times we'll meet virtually or physically, and verbal communication skills will be important. In my position, it seems almost shallow or discriminatory to let something like this be a factor at all. How do you handle something like this without being discriminatory or coming across as petty? My inclination is to hire them and let the team organically figure out the best way to address this. What would you suggest? Bonnie, what do you think?
1: The first thing that popped up in your question, Evert, has to do with your premise that when people are communicating via email or instant message, you said here that this won't be an issue. Obviously, I would question that premise to begin with because a lot of the research would show that so many misunderstandings actually show up when we don't have the context of someone's tone of voice, their body language, facial expressions, etc. So to assume that this is all going to be something that gets solved over email or instant message, I think that you're probably setting yourself up for some potential difficulties there. A lot of what you're talking about here depends on the job. Most jobs today require that we communicate back and forth with other peers, with our supervisor, and potentially even with customers, end users, what have you. So sometimes this challenge can get in the way of someone being able to perform their job. However, sometimes when someone speaks differently, it can actually help us be better listeners. A lot of times we're pretty terrible listeners. So if there's something that's going to make us listen harder, that can actually help us. And and it could be possibly that your team doesn't have sort of those listening muscles really strengthened to be able to do that. So it really depends on how extreme this is. But if it's making you all work hard, that could actually turn out to be a good thing. Uh, one of the things I want to mention here in your question, which I I suspect that you may already be aware of, is that interviews are pretty terrible at assessing how someone might do at a job. And one of the ways that we can get past that is rather than having a search process depend entirely on interviews, instead to try to have them get as close to the job as possible. So if we are hiring a programmer, then is there a tiny little snippet exercise that we could give them to demonstrate their skills in that area? And when I say tiny snippet, by the way, I'm, I'm really wanting to stress that this is not something where you have them go do a week's worth of work in order to get the job. I've been reading a lot about that on social media recently, where some of the job requirements just to interview for a job really get extensive. So I'm talking about just something that would help you pinpoint those essential skills and get out of a context of an interview and more toward determining, does this individual have the core set of skills that it is that we're looking for? And depending on the job and depending on the industry, you may be able to find some examples from whatever professional associations might be associated with these roles could give you some creative ideas for how to do that. I'm glad that you're thinking about discrimination and wanting to be cautious about that. As reading your message, I think you may have gone a little bit too far because of how essential communication is in so much of our workplaces today. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn to communicate well with people who are different than us. In fact, we really should. And some of that could come down to adjusting to an accent. Uh, One of the things that I've been finding even just in good communication is if I'm going to be facilitating an activity or an exercise, can I put one PowerPoint slide that explains the instructions so that everyone knows what's happening in case they tuned out for just a moment or in case we're on a virtual meeting and the internet decided to glitch at that exact moment. So these are really important questions that you're asking and I hope that some of this was helpful guidance for you.
0: Everett, I appreciate you asking this question. I'm not loving the idea of you not really or the team not really addressing this and just deciding, okay, let's hire folks and just kind of let them figure it out. I think to Bonnie's point, obviously, communication is a huge, important role in most every position in the professional space. The question for these roles that you're hiring for is how important is it? How central is it to the job responsibilities of being able to meet in person and communicate effectively and have people to understand that? If that's something that they're doing multiple times a week where they're going to be showing up for team meetings, communicating, and they are not able to communicate in a proficient way where people are going to understand them, that's obviously going to be a challenge and a problem. So one of the things I would really encourage you to do, if you haven't already, is to talk to whoever's advising you from an HR standpoint. Obviously, policies, regulations, best practices vary depending on where you are geographically and industry and all that. But part of this is you may need to look at with an HR professional where do we need to define what the requirements of the role are and how, what are the language requirements if there are some? And if that is the case, what might we do as an organization to assess that objectively during the hiring process? And that way you have a, a framework For exactly what that looks like as far as expectations. Is this a job requirement? Does someone meet the job requirement? Are we assessing for that effectively? And you provide a little bit more objectivity to that versus running into a situation like this where it's not really clear what the team or the role should do with that. That said, if it's not key to the role, if this is something where You know, they're going to need to communicate in person or verbally just occasionally. That might be something you can say, hey, okay, we'd make an accommodation for that in some way. Or maybe we decide that we are setting aside that requirement for this particular person because of other areas. But I don't think the let's just hire them and just see what happens. I mean, you didn't say that explicitly, but that's kind of the sense I'm getting from the question Is like, well, I'm not really sure what to do, so we're just going to kind of hire this person and see what happens. I think having an apparent conversation about that and having a structure for that, if not for these folks coming in, I mean, by the time you're hearing this, you've probably already decided what you're doing, but for the future of what those roles look like, of being really apparent about that, and if that is indeed a requirement of being upfront in that in the application process and having some ability to assess for that, If you do that up front, I think that's going to help you to get to a better place of who can do the role effectively, because ultimately, if they're not going to be successful in doing the role because of a language
1: barrier, that's something that
0: is not going to be good for anyone. So if you can address that earlier on, I think that's probably going to be more beneficial to you.
1: The next question comes from Stephen. Stephen writes, I would love to hear an episode about how to lead without fear. We typically lead with incentives to provide highly engaged employees, but how do we lead without the fear of missing out on these incentives? The perfect world would allow us to lead a team who would perform the same way with or without an incentive. Maybe the collective knowledge obtained from your episodes as a sum can help answer this question, but you have such great guests, I would love to hear some of your thoughts and theirs.
0: Stephen, thank you so much for this question. Bonnie, when this question came in from Stephen, I read the first line and I was like, hear an episode on how to lead without fear. I do not know how to do that, (laughs) leading without fear. But I realized that's not, of course, what you're asking, Stephen. You're using the word fear of how do you actually motivate people beyond just them not having fear about not getting to the metrics and hitting the incentives, whatever those are. I think I'm understanding your question right uh, by phrasing that way. So uh, I appreciate you asking this, because this really comes to a core question, which is around motivation. And the challenge with incentives is that if you're going to provide incentives um, in the short term, you probably are going to want to make sure that those things are things you only want to have happen for the short term or be prepared to provide the incentive ongoing. So for example, if you're trying to motivate a sales team to sell something to a particular kind of client or to sell a particular product or service over something else, and that's truly a short-term move and incentive that you want to introduce, great. But if you are going to expect that that behavior to continue indefinitely, then you're going to want to be prepared to continue that incentive indefinitely. Because the minute you tie something to an incentive, especially a financial reward, what you're saying to people is, hey, I'd like you to do this, and I'm going to provide you something transactionally in order to motivate you to do that. And I think that there's a case to be made for that in the short term, to do something that will address something that is specifically time-specific. The problem I see with this is that too many organizations, Stephen, utilize short-term incentives as the kickstart for long-term behaviors that they want to see happen culturally. And short-term incentives... I have never seen a situation that I can recall where a short-term incentive has really driven a cultural value because the problem is, is once the incentive program ends of we're going to sell to this, we're going to sell this kind of a product or service. We're going to hire this kind of a person. Uh, This has become an interesting thing that some organizations have decided to do around diversity, equity, and inclusion of bringing in diverse candidates and for recruiting teams uh, providing incentives or employees providing incentives to bring in certain kinds of underrepresented employees. That's all well and good in the short term of providing that incentive. But what happens when the incentive goes away? What you're often teaching people is... I'm doing this because of the incentive versus I'm doing this because I am a member of this organization and this is what we value. So I think, first of all, the decision point here, Stephen, is, is this something truly you just want people to do for a short period of time, 30 days, 60 days? If so, fine. A short-term incentive may work to do that. But what I think you're asking a bit here is, how do we actually lead people To have them be motivated to do the kinds of things that are important culturally to the organization of how we want to show up, how we want to behave, and how do we do that and set that stage for the long term? And I don't think that comes from a short-term incentive. I think that comes from being clear about what the values are of the organization, about the leader or leaders of the organization being clear on what do we value? What's important here? How do we treat people? Who are the kinds of people that we hire? Who do we do business with? How do we treat customers when difficult situations show up? And I think you're best of establishing those as values in the organization and saying, here's how we behave. Here's how we do work. And the incentive part is to the question of money and rewards. Financially, that's established well, I think, in many organizations of how do we reward people that is at or above the value that, you know, when looking around of similar kinds of roles in in the industry, how do we make sure we're rewarding people well and establishing those incentives at or above what the market would normally pay for that? And then once you've done that, zeroing in on the human parts of motivation. And this is where the work of Daniel Pink, I think, would be wonderful to dive into if you haven't read before the book Drive. And he zeroes in on autonomy, mastery, and purpose as three key areas where organizations and individuals can really help to motivate folks. And one of the things that Daniel finds in his research is that When you get to a place of thinking about incentives, once you're paying at, or he would recommend, and the research shows this too, at or a little bit above what the market rate would be for that role, then you're moving to other things. You're moving to other things to actually engage people around what do we value, how do we allow people to develop skill sets? How do we provide them autonomy? So many of those things are becoming so important now, especially in the midst of the pandemic and into this hopefully post-pandemic phase that we're in now, of being able to do that well. So I just haven't seen it work well. I mean, you ask me my opinion; I have not seen it work well. Where a short-term incentive to drive long drive a long-term behavior tends to work, and so it's interesting that you use the word fear here, because if it is the culture of the organization, that folks have fear if they're not going to hit a milestone or a benchmark or an incentive. I mean, in a way, that's a bit counterproductive to what an incentive is supposed to do anyway. Incentives is supposed to, a short-term incentive is supposed to do something extra. If there's fear that if I don't hit that, something bad is going to happen to me, There's some work to do there culturally as far as what the organization values. And not only what do we espouse, but what do we truly value that's important. And I think the minute you turn something into a transaction, then you get transactional behavior from people. So I would encourage you to really broaden that a bit. By the way, I'm not saying that compensation isn't important, it's critical. So many firms. Don't take that seriously. Don't look at what the marketplace is paying. And now many organizations are paying the price for that in the midst of the great resignation and not having paid people well. Absolutely pay people well. Absolutely pay them a little bit above market rate if you can. Once you've done that, though, that is just the starting point. It's not the ending point. That's the starting point. And then Being able to look for how can we provide people autonomy? How can we be flexible? How can we provide them purpose in their work? How do we establish good values? That's such a better place to go long-term than getting into the, okay, I'm going to set this incentive for this day to drive this short-term behavior.
1: I want to share about a television show, and I promise I am not going to give away anything that you would not learn about the plot when you watch the preview or the trailer for the show, or something that is just inconsequential for your viewing pleasure, because I would love you to watch it if you happen to have the capacity or availability to watch it. It is called Severance. It is out on Apple TV+. And the premise, again, which you would learn about in the... Trailer is that people that work for this company undergo a surgical procedure that in their brain separates their memories that they have about their work as soon as they leave work and as soon as they arrive to work separates their memories of their personal lives from when they're in the workplace. And this is supposedly supposed to erase all problems. And spoiler alert, I guess I told you it wasn't going to spoil anything. It wouldn't be a TV show if there weren't a few problems with this idea of separating our brains um, surgically. And one aspect of the show, it is one of those that's a mix of a drama, it's very suspenseful, but it also has some comedic elements. And one of the comedic elements is what they choose to offer their employees as incentives. And I don't Want to give away too many of them. They are quite funny, but one I think is pretty safe to do winds up with a waffle party being an incentive that is received by employees. And, and you can imagine that not everyone values waffle parties in the ways in which the employer thinks that they might. And all of this reminds me of an article, a journal article from long ago, I believe it was the 1960s. And I should tell you, so Dave and I both got our master's degrees in organizational leadership and also our doctoral degrees. And if you're not familiar with academic degrees, you end up reading an awful lot of journal articles very few, if any, will you ever remember, you know, for for many, many decades to come, but this one has stayed with me all this time, and it's called On the Folly of Rewarding A while hoping for B. And the author Stephen Kerr goes about discussing in lots of different contexts, including business contexts, what it looks like when we reward things and don't consider the unintended consequences. And when you are coupling incentives with this fear of missing out on said incentives, we do end up really treating the employee-employer relationship a lot more transactionally than I think is going to be particularly healthy for either party. What if instead we can be encouraging people to collaborate? A lot of these incentives are based on the individual performance, by the way. So how can we encourage people more to be collaborating and And how can we be encouraging people to be doing things that everything is sort of grounded in rather than this more short-term approach like Dave talked about a little bit. I think we can sometimes have a little bit of fun and, and and be playful with it. I just think a lot of times we are orienting ourselves to reinforce things that aren't actually holistically, strategically, and on a long-term basis going to be particularly helpful for us. We mentioned
0: a number of resources in this conversation. I've linked them all up on the episode page. It'll be in this week's weekly leadership guide as well. In addition, some of the related episodes that we mentioned, episode 190, How to Improve Your Coaching Skills with Tom Henschel, a wonderful look at coaching. Tom uses some beautiful analogies in that conversation to illustrate the importance of coaching and what coaching is and isn't, and also how to balance it with some of the other responsibilities we have in leadership in management and hitting targets and, of course, metrics. Uh, How do you do that effectively? How do you do a bit of both? Episode 190 for some great perspective on that. Uh, Conversation we did not mention during the conversation is episode 282, How to Motivate People with Dan Ariely. Dan has been a leading voice in thinking about motivation and incentives for many, many years. And in that conversation, we talked about motivation and some of the common missteps that organizations tend to make around financial incentives and also what you can do differently. Episode 282 for more of those details. Bonnie mentioned the work of Edgar Schein. Episode 363 is one of the times Edgar and his son Peter have been on the show. The Path of Humble Leadership was the title of that episode. We looked at their book of the same name and looking at leadership, of course, through the lens of humility. So much there. That's a great compliment to this conversation. I mentioned also the work of Hassan Osman. Effective Delegation of Authority is both the title of his book and the title of the episode we aired, which is Episode four. Some of the key steps on how to delegate well uh, when you're the manager and how to do that effectively. Lots of details there. And then finally, another conversation we didn't mention in our response to the questions, uh, but episode 544 would also be a great compliment to the last question from Stephen on start finding overlooked talent with Johnny Taylor Jr that's episode 544. Johnny and I talked in that episode about incentives related to de I diversity especially and being able to motivate A organization to start to find more diverse candidates and we talked about some of the common pitfalls that organizations run into when beginning to create short-term incentives around hitting some of those diversity metrics it's not only a helpful framework for thinking about that through the lens of diversity but also thinking about incentives especially short-term incentives in general episode 544 for a lot more details on that and johnny's thoughts all of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website If you'll set up your free membership, that will give you access to the entire episode library, searchable by topic. So whether you're looking for management skills or looking for advice on handling difficult conversations, or perhaps episodes on how to influence well, there are dozens and dozens of categories inside the episode library. It is a great way to be able to track down everything you're looking for from all of our interviews since 2011. One of the other resources uh, is, and we got this question somewhere, Several times today, on what are resources and books I can find. One of the best places to start, specifically when you're looking for an article or a resource, is my own library. That's part of the free membership. When you create your free membership, you will see a highlight at the uh, menu item when you log in on your free membership at coachingforleaders.com that says Dave's library. What I have been doing over the years, and it has been many years I've been doing this now, six or seven years I've been databasing every single article that I have found that goes in the weekly leadership guides, other podcast episodes on other shows, articles from Harvard Business Review, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, you name the resource, I have been tracking it down and I've databased it and I've also set it up by topic, so you can go into my own personal library, and when you're looking for an article that might be helpful to your team on sales, or handling difficult conversations, or incentives, or motivation, uh, oftentimes if you do a quick search in Dave's library, you will find something from another source that'll be useful to you as a starting point for credibility and get you further down that road of starting to uncover what's going to be most helpful to you. It's just one of the many benefits of free membership. Dave's library is in there. Set up your free membership by going over to coachingforleaders.com and you can have access to that along with everything else. And we will see you next week for our next conversation on Monday. Have a great week and see you then.